forbidden and banned the bane of bureaucrats, exposing mainstream media's weapons of mass distraction. Flying under the radar and dropping truth bombs on tyranny. It's Liberty Now. Gura, and welcome to episode number 10 of Liberty Now. I'm your host, John Bird. Thank you for stopping by. This is the show for discerning minds and common sense. We seek the truth and can think for ourselves. Here to follow the stories behind the headlines, ask questions, and talk to people who are making a difference. Please be sure to subscribe and get the show notes for this episode at libertynow.com. Okay, I'm going to open with a quick clip from Fox News last year. But a group of parents here in Los Angeles are now filing one against a school district. It's all related to classroom closures that started at the beginning of the pandemic. The attorney representing them, Timothy Snowball, says the suit is the first of its kind in the country. The parents behind the legal action allege their children have suffered academically and emotionally without in-person schooling. They're now suing the L.A. Unified School District and the local teachers union. The parents want classrooms to reopen and are also seeking financial reimbursement for what it costs to keep their kids educated. Children like our clients in this lawsuit have been suffering needlessly because of the political demands of UTLA, which have absolutely nothing to do with the health and safety of teachers or students. The scientific consensus is now clear. Schools can be reopened and... That was Timothy Snowball, my guest today, a civil rights attorney with the Freedom Foundation. Tim, welcome. John, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I want to thank you for your work on defending the Constitution. But in reality, the Constitution is, is just a piece of paper defending our natural rights. Isn't that right? I think so. Yeah. Uh, Justice Scalia uh, was often would quote it as saying that this, you know, the Bill of Rights or the Constitution were what the founders would have called parchment guarantees. guarantees and that, yes. you know, without without some backing up of that or being willing to kind of fight for it, that they're just words on paper. So obviously, as you as you allude to, the actual meaning of these things go much deeper than the words on the paper. And, and I mean, the, the idea here is that anybody can put words on paper. Right. And so the justice would often say, hey, you can look at the constitutions of Russia, USSR, China. All of these countries have written pieces of paper with words on them, making certain guarantees. It's really the substance behind the words and the quality of the character of the people that really makes the difference. Absolutely. Well, I, I hope that we can get back to that um, respect of the meaning behind the words in the U.S. Um, you're right in the middle of the battle there. You're uh, working in LA, is that right? So I'm, I'm actually, I've, I've jumped around a little bit. Uh, I was up in Sacramento. I was born in San Diego. Uh, I was working up in Sacramento. Freedom Foundation is the current organization that I work for. Um, I'm actually back in San Diego now. I'm starting a family. So our oh. first child will be arriving here uh, probably the first week of October. Oh, so congratulations. Family, yeah, thank you very much. My whole family is down here. So it made sense to kind of come back home and relocate and have that family support and everything else. So but California, California born and raised. I went to uh, college up in the Bay Area at UC Berkeley for undergrad. And then I was out in uh, <clears throat> the pit of darkness out in D.C. for a few years for, uh, <laughs> from law, for law school. So, yeah. Oh, good on you. Oh, congratulations. I got a, a October kid as well. Good time of year. 
<laughs> yeah. Just a, a quick background on, you know, how you got here as far as uh, working on what you do. You focus mostly on First Amendment rights. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So I was, I, you know, I was one of those kids who, uh, you know, I hate to say I was bored in school, but uh, there were certain subjects that I gravitated towards. And I remember taking my first American history class, and I think it was in like fifth grade. And I just was fascinated uh, by this idea of inalienable rights and, you know, the Constitution and the history of the United States. It was the first time I'd ever been exposed to any of that stuff. Yeah. And so, you know, developed that passion at a real early age. Uh, I bet I wound up being one of those kids who absolutely, you know, hated high school. So I, I dropped out of high school my senior year. I remember they told me, like, you're, you're so far behind in credits. You'll have to come back and do like a super senior thing. And I was like, I'm, I'm out of here. You know, I every 17 year old knows, you know, what's the best for them. Right. Right. Um, wound up going back to community college here uh, in San Diego, Grossmont College, when I was 25, but really with this idea in mind of wanting to be a civil rights attorney. Um, and for me, so it goes all the way back to the very beginning of, of me going back to school, wanting to do this kind of career. And so um, I was very fortunate, you know, when I was out in D.C. to uh, meet people and network and, and be able to kind of uh, get my foot in the door in this civil rights practice, um, you know, before the 19, I'd say early 1990s, maybe late 80s, a more center right civil rights uh, kind of movement didn't really exist. Uh, the right. legal academy, the courts everything was kind of captured by this more left-wing viewpoint of big government and the administrative state and all these yeah. things. Yes. So this modern liberty movement is really a modern kind of uh, permutation of, of these ideals. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I am starting to see the pendulum swing the other way. The pendulum is swinging. Yes. So before we get into the, the Bill of Rights, this is perfect timing too, because this is episode number 10, and we're going to be talking about the Bill of Rights, which is the first 10 amendments to the Constitution of the United States. In my last episode, I read out the 10 amendments and then I'd now like to go over just a little bit of detail of, of each of them. Um, before we get into the rest of them though, I'd like to read from one of your articles about the First Amendment, which is the freedom of speech, uh, press, assembly, and petition, of course. Uh, quote, throughout American history, people's views on what should or should not count as protected speech under the First Amendment has waxed and waned along with cultural trends and changing political ideologies. But rarely do we see the viewpoint on certain fundamental rights shift so dramatically. Progressives used to champion freedom of speech, even in cases at the Supreme Court. Now, it is more likely to be conservatives defending the First Amendment while progressives push for government censorship and restrictions on speech they don't like. How did we get here? <laughs> you know, it's a great, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, a great question. I mean, I'll step back for a moment and just give a little bit of context to not only the First Amendment, but the entire Bill of Rights, right? So you've got the framers come together in Philadelphia, 1787, and really start from scratch almost in putting this new federal government together. Now, yeah. the, most of them were lawyers. And if you've ever met a lawyer before, you know that they talk to, it's, it's yeah. back and forth all day long, <laughs> every little detail and nuance, right? And so the fact that these individuals were able in a two or three month period to put this document together itself is kind of a miracle. It is. But when, you, when you look at the Constitution, the thing that made it very unique and kind of set it apart as a historical event um, was this idea of the separation of powers. The way that they put right. the government together with this three separate branches, with separate powers, overlapping authority, 
And each one of those, as you, you know, learn seventh grade civics, checking and balancing the other. That was the primary engine, at least as the framers understood, for protecting individual liberty, at least at the federal level, was the way these institutions are set up, they're just simply not going to be able to violate individual rights because unless it's written right here in the page, they've right. got no power to do it. That's, right. It's, you know, and, and it, we might look at something like that with modern context and say that's kind of quaint. But at the time, that was the political science that they were kind of operating under. So the Bill of Rights actually comes as a, a, second, a second thought, right? So you've already got the written constitution that goes right. out to the, to the state assemblies to be approved. Um, you've got this set, you know, faction of anti-federalists, the federalists were the main kind of party pushing the constitution. The anti-federalists come in and said, you know, our, our one condition, our main condition to approve this thing is we want a specific listing of stuff the government can't do. Right. And again, <laughs> you'll read in the Federalist Papers, you know, Alexander Hamilton writing stuff like, well, why do we need to make a list of things that the government has no power to do in the first place? And so it, it's just an important context. I mean, they, their fear was if you make a list of rights, then the focus is going to become just on the stuff in the list. Right. And as we've seen over the last 200 odd years, that has come to pass. Our, you know, our main civil rights stuff really focuses on these things explicitly spelled out in the Bill of Rights, um, as opposed to a broader scope uh, concept of individual liberty. Right, and I, I think it it, it gives um, more room for uh, interpretation, or I should say, less room for interpretation, or more protection if you have um, what negative rights, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that, that is an absolutely, uh, absolute crucial distinction. You look at the Bill of Rights and everything in here is uh, due. And so there's a marked difference between that and a more modern conception of, of positive rights, as you say, which would be uh, a kind of a liberal wish list, right? Hel right to health care, right to right. job, right to a home, right to all these things. Now, these may be good things. We might agree, hey, you know what, it would be a good thing if everyone has a home. But to guarantee that as a right is substantively different than saying the government, for instance, can't interfere with your speech. Right. Well, and it's it's this, um, you know, I've, I've been trying to articulate this to my more liberal friends, you know, and, and as you say, there, there are lots of good things we can do. But you can't legislate or force good because then you're locked into somebody's idea of what is good. And then you have to enumerate every single potential possible good. Whereas if you just um, legislate um, the, the bad things people can't do, and there's a much smaller scope of those things, then I think you have a much more fair society. Yeah. And you're also, I mean, when you, when you extend a benefit, a privilege, uh, an entitlement, to the public, yeah. right? Entitlement to the public, you are now obligating society to provide that. Right. And again, that is something much different than, than the Bill of Rights, which is the idea that if we can limit government power, you will have a maximum sphere of individual liberty. So the individual can decide what to say, what to write, whom to worship, all these different things. That's different than saying, you know, John and Tim collectively should be on the hook to provide X, Y, Z to a third party, right? So when you say something yes. like healthcare, healthcare is an individual right. You know, the government can't just snap their fingers and produce 
healthcare for people that comes from somewhere. Right. Someone must pay for that. Exactly. And so there's a there's an important there's an important simply labeling something as a right doesn't mean that the uh, laws of economic scarcity no longer exist. Right. We're going to simply we're simply going to you know it's a right, so we don't yeah. have to worry about all that supply and demand stuff. It's just a, it's a right, so let's just sign the bill. Well said, and and that's just looking at it from the practical material perspective, and then there's also the moral and ethical perspective how can you enforce what you believe is it's like trying to uh, enforce one religion on everybody you know not everybody believes in that particular good and their basic human rights are much more fundamental than these ever-growing list of entitlements we seem to be facing well sure and even just even i mean we stepped back from the bill of rights to the constitution the structural design you can take one step farther back and look at the principles as laid down in the Declaration of Independence. And I mean, really, the Declaration of Independence, you open any U.S. code book, which is the statutory law of the United States, the first page when you open it in the organic law is the Declaration of Independence. It is literally the foundation of our entire system. And what is the Declaration of Independence premised on? The idea of natural rights pre-existing government. Yes. And therefore, the purpose of government flowing from that mandate. Right, right. And I, I think that the government and the bureaucracy has, has grown so large and it's become its own living organism. And it, it's just like any living organism, it has this uh, sense of, of self-protection <clears throat> that only continues to grow or metastasize, <laughs> you want to say. But and it circles back to your to your original question in regards to the First Amendment. And this in that article that you you had uh, read from, I think I had written that a few years ago when I had written yeah. an amicus brief in the Fifth Circuit on a Texas case having to do with the speech police on a yeah. campus out of Texas, University of Texas, where if you said something in class as a student or even on campus, flag you for this special campus committee who could then show up at your dorm room and have you do an invest have an investigation into your speech and all these different things. And I think that the, the point here, at least I was trying to make in that article is, you know, there's a difference between commitment to principle and commitment to politics. So I'll, yeah. I'll tell you what I, what I mean, right? So, you know, you cited the ACLU um, and I think I pointed that out in that piece as an organization that classically speaking had been in favor of free speech. I mean, this is the organization that went out to Skokie, Illinois to uh, advocate on behalf of the rights of those Nazis to go march down the street and 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 spew their hate speech, mm, right? right? Hey, look, I don't think anybody, uh, you know, at least that I know, is going to go out there and say that was a, you know, that they like that they like the content of the speech of those guys marching down the street. Right. What they like is living in a country where you have the right to say abhorrent things. Right. And when you get into the business of deciding which speech is okay. And which speech is bad and should not be allowed, you know, like you said, you give government authority or power, and that's something they're never going to give. That's the yep. last, last thing I want is Joe Biden or Barack Obama or anybody deciding, quite frankly, what I can or cannot say, what oh, should be boy. allowed to be expressed. They're trying their very best, aren't they? <laughs> Let's get on to the next nine amendments. The second one, hotly contested. We'll try not to go too long in this, but... Uh, the right to keep and bear arms in order to maintain a well-regulated militia, one I believe also very strongly in, and it also supports the first, the first and the second um, go hand in hand. 
I've read a lot of articles where arguments are made that this is not to be interpreted as individual owners, but some sort of regulated or, or organized militia. But I've read also the original words of the founding fathers who made it quite clear, uh, in my view, that they intend for citizens to be armed. Yeah, and, and you know, the, well, first of all, anybody who's interested, you know, there was a Supreme Court decision on this in 2008, the Heller decision, H-E-L-L-E-R. And, you know, the, the majority in that case painstakingly, painstakingly goes through the history behind the Second Amendment, pointing out the reasons why it was interpreted to convey an individual right upon, upon individuals to bear arms. <clears throat> but I think the larger point here uh, really is one of a judicial interpretation. I mean, think of just this term alone at the Supreme Court. You had five or six hot button issues that got decided by the court. And the split really is based upon which philosophy of judicial interpretation the particular justices embrace. So for example, right. you would look at a, a, a decision like Heller, right? Where Justice Scalia and the majority in that case in 2008, the first thing they looked at was the text, the words of the second amendment. Yes. Trying to figure out what those words meant at the time the amendment was enacted. There are all kinds of reasons why that should be the starting point for judges. Number one, nobody elects judges. Right. There's no democratic oversight, especially at the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah. Uh, number two, you know, a lot of these people, you know, God bless them, they're 80 years old or something, and they're living, you know, probably relatively sheltered lives. These are not people who have their finger on the hot, the, the, the pulse of, you know, of America in terms of what should or should not happen in terms of public policy, right? Right. So, the way that the separation of powers works is, you know, these judges are supposed to decide what the constitution and laws say, full stop, that's right. it. And so, you know, you look at Heller or uh, any of these recent decisions this term, and sometimes uh, opinions might not come out. The result of cases might not be what an individual justice likes. Like, right. for example, someone might go, man, you know, like if I was king of the universe, right. or if I could snap my fingers and make this happen, this is not what I would do. You know, maybe uh, if I could just snap my fingers, maybe now, I think it's wrong that, that someone can own a certain weapon, right? I don't like that personally, but my personal opinion on it has nothing to do with what the text of the law says in which time it was enacted. And so, especially when it comes to the second amendment, um, you know, the very reason we have a bill of rights is to remove certain things from democratic commenting. So I, I always think it's funny right. when, uh, uh, news media or something will have like a poll, like, hey, you know, uh, X number of Americans support policy X uh, that to repeal whatever amendment or change whatever amendment. And I go, that really has not, that really, <laughs> it really doesn't matter. You know, like that's, right. that's kind of not the way the system is set up. So, um, but you definitely had, you had a good result this term on the second amendment and, and yeah. the first amendment. I mean, it's, it's, the court, I think, for many observers is definitely moving in a positive direction. Yes. Yeah. Which is very encouraging um, after so many years, especially recent five to 10 years of, of going the other way. So amen to that. <laughs> so I, I won't even go into examples of violations of the Second Amendment. You don't have to look very hard for that. The Third Amendment, uh, no, no quartering Hot of button. soldiers. Oh, is... <laughs> yeah. The Third Amendment, I'll tell you, like, like, so this is interesting. So as you said, this, this is a prohibition on soldiers being quartered uh, in homes, Yes. right? And so this is one of those things where 
this was a big deal during the time of the founding. Like right. they had they had myriad examples of this, what they consider to be a basic property and privacy right in the home that bleeds over into the Fourth Amendment. But uh, this was, you know, a big deal on the table and they, they enact this thing. And it's just one of those examples of historical you know, circumstances not bearing it out, right? Um, I don't, to my knowledge, there's never been a major third amendment case ever decided by any, any federal court in the United States. Uh, Maybe there's a couple of examples I'm not familiar with, but. I've seen it employed as, as a potential violation with regard to um, property owners, uh, renters not being allowed to be evicted from their homes. And Mm. some of those renters may be military. And so you Mm. could make the argument, but um, yeah, no, no blatant, I guess, obvious cases. I've sat around, uh, you know, uh, conservative libertarian happy hours before uh, with a bunch of other lawyers going, man, you know, whoever comes up with this third amendment case is really going to get their name on the books or whatever. But, uh, you know, as you, uh, as you mentioned, it's not, nothing has kind of uh, happened with that. So, so far yeah. uh, in American history. Um, fourth amendment though, I think we have seen unreasonable searches and seizures, um, but that's all about, you know, freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures. I, I love the Fourth Amendment. Uh, my previous, my work now, uh, the Freedom Foundation is mostly focused on the First Amendment rights of public workers, um, not to have their money taken and spent by unions without their consent. That's a violation of their First Amendment right against coerced speech. But uh, in past jobs, my most previous recent job, uh, I was a big Fourth Amendment guy. And we yeah. filed a lot of cases trying to protect people's right to be safe and secure from government interference inside their own home. And I think the Fourth Amendment is a great example of, again, how the text of the Constitution, the text of the amendment is locked in place, but it's flexible enough to allow for modern modern circumstances. So I'll give you an example. There was a case that came up a few years ago where a police jurisdiction was using um, infrared kind of sonar technology to look at homes that were suspected of having illegal marijuana grow operations. Right. And by pointing the thing at the building, they could see heat signatures that would let them know whether there were like plant growing lamps inside. And right. based upon that, then affecting arrests and, and everything else. So the court comes in in that case and says, okay, you know, we're looking at the Fourth Amendment. Obviously, uh, the framers weren't thinking about heat growing marijuana. So how do we look at this language and decide whether or not it should encompass this right? to be free from this technology, which was the basis for the, for the case. And they said, you know, yeah, look, even though the text of this doesn't encompass this, the basic idea is for people to maintain privacy inside right. their homes. And this using this kind of heat seeking lamp or camera or whatever it was to basically see into someone's living room or garage would be no different than a constable in the 18th century, kicking the door down, right. and walking inside. Right. And so based upon that, they were able to say, look, you know, this is this is we're going to hold this to be unconstitutional. Now, the main issue with Fourth Amendment law currently is this idea of administrative searches. There is something called the administrative search doctrine that was made up in the 1970s out of out of thin air, which basically says when the government has an administrative reason for needing to affect a search, uh, that's not going to be considered a search requiring a, a warrant. All right. Right. And that small, you know, it, it, as it does with many doctrines, this small exception, the small slice out from our liberty 
winds up over time being compounded to where now you've got this beast, you know, beastly administrative search, you know, exception that is absolutely uh, insane. I'll give you an example. I had a client out here in California who was a falconer. Falconer. Yeah, yeah. And they go out and they fly them. Some some people do hunting with them. Others just do different routines and tricks and stuff. It is uh, absolutely a dedicated art form, far more than having a pet. I mean, these, you get to train, you get these birds from birth and you train them every day. And the relationship is, is incredibly close between animal and man. And so the state of California enacts a regulation saying uh, you have to have a falconry license. Okay, we can see that. It's a license. But as a condition of getting your license, you have to agree to warrantless searches of your falconry facilities at any time that fish and wildlife shows up on your doorstep. Uh, <laughs> as you may have guessed, 99% of these people, their falconry facilities are like their bedroom. You know, the bird just lives right. in the house. So this winds up in enforcement functioning as them being able to come into your home at any time without reason, without a warrant. And it again, couched on this administrative search exception. So that's a, a great example. So moving on to the Fifth Amendment, the right to due process, freedom from self-incrimination and double jeopardy. There's a couple of the Bill of Rights that I think where January 6th might be applicable here, but I'd like to get your take on it. So what about the Fifth Amendment? Yeah, so I think there, there are a couple of points that you mentioned in there that are, that are particularly important in the context of criminal law. Of course, double jeopardy. If you are tried in a court of law, and found to be innocent by a jury of your peers, they can't charge you again. And, right. and they can't, you cannot be tried again for something for which you've already been found innocent or, or guilty for that matter. And again, you have to look at the historical context. There was all kinds of shenanigans going on under British law or, or lack thereof you know, in the colonial era in the United States. And again, this was trying to combat a very specific violation going on during colonial times. Uh, the other one, you know, another important one, not being compelled to uh, speak, you know, to speak out against yourself, to testify against yourself. Right. Now, don't, don't construe this as legal advice, but I would suggest that your listeners or viewers go look up the Miranda case, right? Miranda versus Arizona. Yes. You absolutely, this is not legal advice, you absolutely, but you absolutely, as a matter of stating principle, have no obligation to speak to police. You cannot be forced to speak to police unless you're in the back of a car. You don't have to say anything. And the, and the police, even in the course of going through, you know, and trying to do their law enforcement activities are allowed to mislead you and basically lie to you in order to get uh, information about the case. So right. that would be my suggestion. And I, that I tell friends and family is uh, even if you, <laughs> especially if you're innocent, but it's, even if you have some question about whether or not you've committed by some violation, you're not obligated to speak to police. So that's the, the self-incrimination uh, prohibition. Right. One other point here I think is interesting on the Fifth Amendment uh, is this idea of the takings clause. So we've all heard of, um, you know, just, just compensation. You must, the government can take your property, but they have to pay you just compensation. Right. Right. The classic idea of this would be if the government was going to perhaps take your property to build a park, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it, the, 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 it's public use is the phrase they use. So something right. for public use. So a park, a hospital, a freeway, think of it like that. Right. Um, you know, unfortunately that 
phrase has been expanded in recent years. You had a case in 2006 at the Supreme Court, Kilo versus New London, where <laughs> they had uh, uh, New London, Connecticut had basically come in and taken this neighborhood, this entire neighborhood of houses, and they were planning to sell the property or, or deed the property over to a pharmaceutical company to build a new office complex or something that was going to generate tax revenue. And so the new Londoners went, my God, you can't, this is not public use. You're just, this is not, you're not building a park. They right. took them to court. It got all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And unfortunately, the U.S. Supreme Court in 2006, they had a, an unfortunate ruling in the Kelo case. And they said, well, <clears throat> we know public use meant, you know, this classical kind of understanding, but we're going to interpret that more broadly here to wow. encompass generating tax revenue. And it was it was a liberal majority of the court of at course. that point who, who decided that case. And again, it's 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 a test case. You know, you can compare that to a, a Heller case, for example, to, to look at how the different judicial philosophies function. One is couched in the separation of powers and limiting the role of judges. The other is a more expansive understanding of, of what judges do and and perhaps even judges functioning as a super legislature of some kind to, right. to enact law. Like the, the uh, sort of anything can be justified under the greater good. <laughs> Which is no limitation at all. Exactly, exactly. That's why I, I, one of those other basic philosophical points, you know, I, I question, you know, is there really a greater good? That could be a whole episode by itself. <laughs> Let's see, Sixth Amendment. Uh, rights of accused persons, right to a speedy and public trial. This is this is one more specifically to January 6th, where we don't see that happening. I think it's being violated all over mm. the place with people who were merely present and not mm. even no no uh, indictments even. Yeah, I, I so my first job in law school, my first summer clerkship was in a public defender's office. And so when I think of the Sixth Amendment, it always this idea of access to counsel. Uh, the, the case was Gideon versus Wainwright. I think it was back in the 1960s. And the Gideon case was in the context of a criminal trial where someone had been basically denied counsel. They weren't given access to publicly provided counsel. So before prior to that, if you couldn't afford an attorney, if you were charged with a crime, you didn't have an attorney. There was no public the, the Sixth Amendment had not been interpreted to provide that for you as a, you know, a uh, benefit of citizenship. And so uh, when I, I worked with attorneys in the public defender's office who, you know, had the sixth amendment up on their wall uh, in their, in their office to remind them of really what their duty was, which is to step in and to give people a, a criminal defense. I mean, even the worst offenders, the reason that we can be confident in a verdict when someone's convicted is because they've been given the benefit of the law and, and due process. And a big part of due process in the criminal context is access to counsel and not having to defend yourself, having someone who's a legal professional be able to come in and basically speak on your behalf and, right. and give you advice on what your best course of action is. So um, I know in a lot of these hot button cases that come up now, so many people are quick to, you know, like somebody gets accused of something or gets arrested for something and it's like, oh, you know, String them up. They're guilty. Right. And really, you know, no not, only, not only in our system do people get the benefit of the doubt, quite literally, but going through that entire process is important for feeling confident 
in the end result that the that the correct yes. result was reached right and more secure in our own freedoms and you know right to go about our daily lives right. how many examples have we seen where people ended up you know even on death row and, and maybe even were uh, pardoned posthumously it's um that alone should the give us pause so moving on to the seventh amendment the right of trial by jury in a civil cases when 20 bucks is a controversy so again right. again, <laughs> again i know yeah well, again, this is <laughs> hey 20 bucks is 20 bucks that's right uh, but obviously the uh, exchange rate for 20 dollars in 1787 was probably quite a bit more money so uh, whatever you think a sizable amount in controversy is, uh, I think um, for current federal statutes, it's like $75,000 or something. So insert a sizable amount of money uh, into this and you'll see what the purpose of this was. But again, uh, very, very few Seventh Amendment cases have come up. I think most of the cases I read in law school were these kind of classical foundational cases trying to figure out the difference between a case for equity versus a case for legal damages and wonky stuff that nobody who's not slaving away getting a JD uh, really cares all that much about, I think. But again, right. and, and that, you know, some, something that was a big deal to the framers that, you know, they wanted to preserve in there that simply uh, has not been borne out over time. Uh, Eighth Amendment, freedom from excessive bail, cruel and unusual punishments. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, the thing that main thing that jumps to mind for me as in terms of Eighth Amendment litigation in recent years has been controversy over the death penalty. So there oh, yeah. have been uh, different cases that have come up where the argument has been that inflicting the death penalty on someone uh, should be considered cruel and unusual punishment. Um, the courts, to my knowledge, and I, I want to say I can't remember the name of the case, but I know Justice Scalia opined uh, in at least one case analyzing this and saying again look so we need to look at not what we think should qualify as cruel and unusual punishment like there's all kinds of things in the modern context the framers never would have even thought of right what did they think of the death penalty did they think the death penalty was is something vicious? and he went back and did a historical review and said no no the death penalty was a widely uh, inflicted punishment for certain crimes in the colonial and the founding era. And so it's simply incompatible with the, an original understanding of the Eighth Amendment to claim that the, that the death penalty should qualify for this. And, and again, like that's not to say that Congress couldn't enact a bill tomorrow saying that cruel and unusual punishment is, is illegal. Right. And right. they could try to do it. There are reasons structurally why that would be questionable, but I guess they, they, they do all kinds of questionable things. But my Indeed. point there, my point there is simply that whether you're talking about uh, death penalty, gun rights, any other hot button issue, um, it's not as if Congress's hands are tied besides just the, the reality of political gridlock uh, in terms of changing federal law. A lot of these cases just turn on. Is it in the text? And if it's not in the text, then judges should be particularly skeptical of stepping in and supplying a rationale that's not reflected there. Exactly, exactly. Okay, uh, the Ninth Amendment, rights of the people. It's interesting. So uh, you look at the Ninth and Tenth Amendment kind of um, as two sides of the same coin. Okay. So really, the Eighth Amendment, the first to the Eighth Amendment are very strict 
kind of prohibitions on what government can or cannot do. And you see the Ninth and Tenth Amendment almost as addendums onto that list. And so, for example, the Ninth Amendment says, uh, just because we've made a list of rights in this Bill of Rights doesn't mean that's all there is. Right. And the fact that we've listed this out doesn't mean that there aren't other rights that aren't listed here. And basically, this gets to that problem that I identified before that Hamilton talks about in the Federalist Papers, which is, hey, my gosh, if we make a list, it's going to be the idea is going to become that it's only the stuff on this list that counts. Right. And so they wanted they wanted to avoid that appearance. And unfortunately, the, the Ninth Amendment hasn't gotten much much attention uh, over over history. Um, at this point, you probably have two schools of thought on the Ninth Amendment. Um, you have the, the kind of Borkian school of thought, Robert Bork, during his confirmation hearings uh, for the Supreme Court, I think it was in the late 80s, uh, was famously quoted in the confirmation hearing as saying that the Ninth Amendment is nothing more than an ink blot, that wow. it, really has no, it, it really has no purpose or functionality. It's just kind of a statement gate or, or you know, enforce. Um, you have Professor Randy Barnett uh, at Georgetown University Law School who's kind of the other side of this, who says, no, you know, we really should be looking at the Ninth Amendment as a source, a substantive source of additional rights that aren't listed in the constitutions. For right. example, the right, the right to earn an honest living, right? Economic, the right to economic liberty, uh, things like this, that even though they're not listed here, I think you'd ask the average American, well, should you have the right to work whatever job you want? And people would say, yeah, of course you should be able to go right. out and earn a living. And so um, from the more Barnett school of thought that, that the Ninth Amendment should be a substantive source of, of individual liberties that aren't listed. Right. And I mean, the, the framers clearly, they put a lot of thought into this and they didn't just randomly drop an ink blot. Into the, <laughs> but uh, but it's, 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 you know, it's important to, to realize, though, that even when we're talking about the Ninth Amendment, we're not simply saying that you should insert whatever you want. It's not a free for all. It's not right, a free pass, right? Right. So it's not something where you should say, you know, I think every uh, kid in America should have access to an Xbox or something, and that's a, <laughs> a, you know, a right. And we're going to find that that's a liberty interest in the Ninth Amendment. Still, right. even when you see legal analysis under the Ninth Amendment, you're looking at what the understanding would have been at the time of enactment. And so you're still limited by history. Right. And then the flip side of that coin, as you say, the powers reserved to the states as opposed to uh, one central government. Sure. 10th Amendment. Right. It's just it's just it's the same kind of idea um, as the ninth in terms of kind of being tacked on there at the end as an additional protection and statement of principle. And so the 10th Amendment says, hey, whatever powers that the people have given to the, the federal government under this Constitution, whatever's left is theirs. And so, you know, right. origin, originally the idea was article, uh, article one of the constitution section eight has this, I think it's like 16 things Congress can, can legislate on. That was supposed to be it. Like right. if it wasn't on that list, that was supposed to be it. And so from that uh, framework, the vast majority of political power and regulatory power was, was reserved to the states and to the people. Right. I really appreciate uh, giving us a clearer understanding of, of each of the uh, amendments to the, in the Bill of Rights. You've been really fighting tirelessly, and uh, I appreciate people like you out there, um, you know, working to preserve those rights. 
Tim, in the bigger picture, what, what are the best and worst case scenarios you see for America, say between now and, and 2024? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's, that's definitely the short term. Um, you know, for me, when I, when I think of current issues facing the country, you know, I wonder if, if a lot of our problems aren't cultural in, in nature, and I'll explain what I mean. Um, when Alexis de Tocqueville, the famous uh, political theorist, visited the United States in the early, you know, in the 1830s, I think he visited uh, French, and uh, his treatise on, it's called Democracy in America, is this great treatise on American democracy, the uniqueness of our system. You know, he, he opined on this idea of American civil society, and that when it came to going into uh, American hamlets or villages or cities or whatever else, that American society was tied together through bonds of fellowship in a way that he had not observed, at least in his home country and other countries. So we're talking about family, church, civic organizations, just the, 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 the real substance of, of, of collective society. And that's something that I think has been frayed, quite frankly, and, and, and harmed uh, in recent generations, because yep. As long as Americans look at each other as the enemy, and you know, especially when it's over a simple difference of opinion, it's going to be hard to, to come to the table and, and reach compromises on even local issues. I mean, my God. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I've I've seen it, it just in my lifetime, and it seems to have accelerated. I mean, there were always you know political differences, and I, I don't remember as a kid even. Um, this sort of gamification of where there's like the 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 right is red and the left is blue the republican and democrat like the the team colors well it's tribal it's tribalism right it's tribal it's tribalism and and what winds up happening i think is that it exacerbates some of our worst uh you know impulses as human beings and so rather than being community-minded and and seeking what's best for the country i mean even 50 years ago, if you were somebody who was critical of the United States, we all saluted the same flag and understood Correct. that even if you were opposing what the country did, it was still the country in our system of government that was providing you the individual liberty to disagree. Correct. And, 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 and so I think a lot of that civic mindedness has been lost. My hope would be that it doesn't devolve into violence, that, that, it, that, that it doesn't devolve into something more serious than just disagreeing. But at the same time, really, it's, it's going to come down to what kind of country do Americans want to have? Yeah. Um, if, yeah. if, our framers, if our framers were correct, we hold all political power. And right. uh, I think we should be willing to use it. Well, it, it, exactly. Well, that's it's, you know, we see sort of a lack of willingness to participate in, in the political process it's more about like street justice these days it seems to be you know the or so social justice on social media mm. um, but people need to be involved more in real politics i think and and holding their politicians feet to the fire you know rather than setting fires in the streets yeah i no, i agree i mean it, it, there's this idea of democratic oversight which is if if people aren't doing their job in terms of elected officials, yeah. kick the bums out. Yeah, <laughs> you know? and, exactly. Uh, but again, yeah. I, I, you know, you, you highlighted this idea of bureaucracy before. And unfortunately, I'd say at least a third, 
if not more of the federal government at this point are unelected bureaucrats in administrative agencies, which yeah. is, uh, could be a whole different episode. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, and, and again, that it's at the root of that is, you know, just the lack of accountability, you know, whereas elected officials, they have, you know, term limits and, and those things. Well, Tim, I, I appreciate your work again. And, um, how can people follow you or support you? What's the best way to follow your work? Yeah, I, so you can definitely check out Freedom Foundation. Um, the best starting point is freedomfoundation.com. It's got our website, all of our client histories and um, all the outreach we do to public employees. If you are a public employee who is interested in deciding for yourself how your money should be spent rather than having the union take it and spend it on radical politics, uh, go mm-hmm. to optouttoday.com. Opt-out we have all kinds of resources on there about how you can flex and, and you know exercise your rights. And of course, we're all over Facebook and Twitter and all that fun stuff, fun, fun, fun or taxing, uh, depending upon the day, I guess, but yeah. <laughs> certainly all over social media. Awesome. Well, I'll put those links up on the website for you. Anybody interested in, in learning more, please go to libertynow.com and I'll post that up there. And uh, Tim, are there any other um, news sources or, or maybe books recommended reading you would have for our listeners? Well, I mean, you, you, I, I am somebody who, unfortunately, I, I kind of lost my patience with the, with the mainstream media, as I'm sure many people have. So I, I'm not much of uh, the media. If I had a general recommendation, it would be to, for people to read more. I know that they go about their lives and most people are just trying to put food on the table and take care of their kids and, and take care of their families, which is completely understandable. Um, you don't have to be uh, particularly well read to, to participate in our democracy and our system as it should be should be a right of citizenship but i would say you know you mentioned sources like the federalist papers yeah we have we have we have an entire uh, series of essays that were written by three of the primary founding fathers about what their view of the constitution was at the time that they were out there fighting to get the thing ratified and so certainly in terms of original source documents uh, if, if you haven't, any of your uh, listeners or, or viewers haven't read the Federalist Papers, you know, maybe you don't want to read the whole thing, but it's certainly worth looking up some of the main, there's three or four that are just absolutely fundamental to yes. modern debates. And so I would encourage people to look those up. Yeah, thank you for uh, reminding me of that. I, I have a copy in my library and uh, I think I might be able to provide a, a PDF. You should be able to get it for free online. Um, so I'll host a copy of that for anybody interested. We'll uh, post that also up at libertynow.com. Awesome. Well, thank you, Tim. I really appreciate your time. Sorry for all the glitches. I, I hope that I'm able to put this all together into a cohesive podcast. No problem. Yeah. Um, but great stuff. Um, well, that's all we have time for today, folks. And uh, until next time, please remember to be good, do the right thing, and keep asking questions.